Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us. We thank you for getting us out of bed today. We thank you, Lord, for our beating hearts. We thank you for the breath, Lord, in our lungs. Thank you that we can praise you, that we can glorify you, that we can open up your word together, Lord, that you preserved your word for us. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path, Lord. It sustains us. It keeps us. It's our roadmap in life. Lord, help us to see it, to love it, to just be entrenched in it this morning, Lord, to weed out, Lord, anything in our lives that's not pleasing to you. We pray, Lord, that we would, as we sang earlier, surrender all to you, everything, Lord, to you. And we know that we're in a daily battle, Lord, a fight, a fight for the faith. So help us to keep the faith. Help us to keep moving forward in you. Lord, help us to set our minds on things above and not on things of this world as there's so much darkness, so many things in this world, Lord, where people are just against one another and selfish and not for you, Lord, and for others. We pray, Lord, that we would be different. Pray that we would be lights, Lord, in this dark world, that we would be lights in the world around us, Lord, here in the Treasure Valley, that people would see our good deeds and glorify you in heaven. So, Lord, be with us this morning as we get into your word. Speak to our hearts, encourage us, edify us, build us up, grow us in our love for you and one another. Bless this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of today's teaching is Bearing the Fruit of Goodness. Bearing the Fruit of Goodness. We took a little bit of a detour in our study of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Life seemed to happen, and as it always does, and so we're back today in Galatians 5.22. Originally, I was just going to go, if you remember, through love, joy, and peace, the big three, as I called them. And then I did love, joy, peace, patience. And then I thought, well, kindness is really important. And then I talked to a brother in Simi Valley, a dear brother, and he said, I've been listening to your messages online, and you really need to keep going through the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And I said, I don't know. God's put other things on my heart. And so here we are back in the fruit of the Holy Spirit today talking about goodness and asking the question, what is goodness? What does pursuing goodness look like? What does that practically look like in our lives? And why is it important? Why is it important that we talk about goodness this morning? And I think when you look at the other fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, at least to me on face value, we I have an understanding of what they are and maybe how to define them, even though we need to dig deeper and look in the scripture and you and see how these words are used. But when we talk about goodness, it's like, what is goodness? And I'm like, do we use that word often in our vernacular and, and how we talk to one another? Goodness. And I thought about Christmas. Be good for goodness sake. And I heard that all... <laughs> I heard that all the time growing up. Be good for goodness sake, right? I believed in Santa Claus until I saw a Toys R Us sticker on one of the gifts that my mom gave me that was supposedly from Santa Claus. And then she tried to say the elves worked for Toys R Us somehow and sent the, and then I figured it out that, I remember that year. But you know the song, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why because Santa Claus is coming to town. And so you better be good for goodness sake, right kids? And so if you really want those gifts, you're gonna be good. If you don't want coal, and none of us wanted coal, right? Then you're good, you try to be good. But the biblical 
presentation, it's a little bit different, right? We can't be good is what the Bible teaches. Apart from God and apart from his goodness, there's no good in us. And that's what David said in Psalm 16 too. He said, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Apart from God, his goodness in our lives, we can't be good. The, the scripture actually says our good works, you guys know the scripture, are like filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. Those are our good works apart from Jesus Christ in our own strength. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, right? All of our sin has accumulated to the point where when we try to do good before the Lord apart from Christ, that amounts to nothing. It's filthy rags. So those in this world that give to charity, those in this world who supposedly do good, all these foundations that these politicians and these rich people have that do it apart from Christ, that do it not knowing Jesus, God sees those things as filthy rags. They can give millions of dollars away, but really it's done from an impure heart. It's self-motivated and it glorifies themselves and not God. But when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, our good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, we now have the ability through his Holy Spirit living in us to bear the fruits that are pleasing to God. It's no longer filthy rags, but the scripture calls it a fragrant aroma to the Lord. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.15. We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And then in Philippians 4, he mentions this gift. And he mentions this gift that the Philippians gave him. Most likely a financial gift. Paul was traveling. He's preaching the gospel. He's making tents on the side. He's trying to pay his own way. And the Philippian church, out of love and compassion towards him, they give him this gift. And Paul says that this gift is a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So when we do good works, when we give good gifts, when we give our lives to serving God and others, it's a fragrance in the Lord's nostrils, so to speak. It's pleasing to him. So now that we have the love of Christ in our lives, we have the peace of Christ in our lives, the joy of Christ in our lives, the kindness of Christ in our lives, the goodness of Christ in our lives. The more we live all these fruits out, the more we become like Jesus, the more we can be his hands and feet in this world. And that's why we're still here. That's why after you and I, that's one of the main reasons I believe, after you and I got saved, God didn't just take us up to heaven. We're his hands and feet. We have a job to do. We need to be his hands and feet in this world. We need to be ministering to the lost, serving them, showing them these good fruits and in the church and in our families. So these good fruits don't save us, right? That's legalism. That's works righteousness. So if, as I'm going through the fruit of the Holy Spirit and saying let's do good to one another and let's be kind to one another, some people can take that as I need to do enough kindness. I need to do enough goodness. I need to work my way to heaven. And actually, that's what was happening in the Galatian church. They were trying to keep the Old Testament law, right? And so Paul, over and over and over again, through the book of Galatians, is pleading with them. It's all through faith. First couple chapters, justification. 
It's all through faith. He establishes the gospel. If we or an angel from heaven preach to you another gospel than that which we preached, let him be accursed. And then he says, I'll say it again. If any man preaches a gospel other than the gospel that we preached, let him be accursed. And then he lays out this is what the gospel is. And then he lays out what faith is. 16 times in the first three chapters, he mentions the word faith. And if you look at Galatians with me, Galatians chapter 2 Verse 16, I think, sums up the book pretty well. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul belabors the point in this verse several ways. Galatians 2, 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. He's like, how can I restate this several different ways in one verse? Although these verses, these numbers weren't in the original autographs in the original Greek, this one verse has him restating this main point over and over. We're justified by faith. We're not justified by the law. We're not justified by the law. We're justified by faith. If you look at chapter 3, verses 22 through 26, he says, But the scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. He's trying to make it as clear as possible. Hope you guys can see that. The law is a tutor. The law shows us our sin. The law is a mirror. And now that we see our sin, the law should drive us to Jesus Christ, the only one that can save us. And so Paul even says elsewhere that if righteousness, he says it in Galatians 2, 21, I believe it is, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died needlessly. If we could be saved any other way, if we could work our way to heaven, if we can keep enough laws and if we could do enough good deeds and if works righteousness were true, Paul's argument then is Christ died needlessly. He died for no purpose. So, that, so he establishes that it, we're justified by faith. We're made right with God by faith. We accredit everything that Jesus accomplished in his life. It's accredited to our account when we believe in him. That's the good news. All I have to do is trust in Jesus Christ put my faith in him and I'm, a credit, I'm credited with his righteousness. That's amazing. Yet every other faith in Christianity says, no, I need to work my way to heaven. I need to have this, the balance of good outweighing the bad. And many Christians think that way as well. If I'm just good enough, if I can just be kind enough, if I can just do enough good deeds, then I can gain God's favor. Instead of, I believe in Jesus, I trust in him, he loves me, I have his favor, and so now from an outflow of that, I want to please him with my life. I want to do good deeds. I want to be kind to others. 
I want to pursue reconciliation with people in the church and in my family and my friends. And so that is a point that I want to belabor before we talk and try to explain what goodness is. So Paul implores the Galatian church in chapter 5, verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. He says again in Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So the Spirit and faith are two of the key themes in the book of Galatians. It's all by faith. It's all through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he even says this with the Colossian church, the church in Thessalonica, the Ephesian church. Listen listen to Colossians 1.10. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Ephesians 4.1, I urge you walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 2 Thessalonians 2.12, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of God. God wants us to live out our true identity in him. We're saved, we're Christians, we have the Holy Spirit, therefore walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now that we're saved, live it out. Now that we're new creations, live like new creations. That's why almost every New Testament book, all of Paul's letters start out with theology. This is salvation in Christ. This is who Christ is. This is what Christ has done for us. Now this is how we are to live in this world. And sometimes I, I mean, if you look at my Bible, many of his letters, Paul's letters, the last half of the books The last half of these letters are the most marked up in my Bible because to me, these are the places of scripture that are most overlooked in many Christian circles and many Christians that I've rubbed shoulders with outside of the church. They swing the pendulum over here and say, yeah, we're justified by faith and they just focus on justification all the time. And amen, we want to talk about justification We don't want to put the cart before the horse, but now once we understand justification and that we're saved and that we're accredited with Christ's righteousness, now we really need to focus on how to live in this world. We need to be different from the world. And there's too many Christians that are saying, let's be like the world to reach the world. The world's getting drunk, so let's go to the bars and get drunk with them to preach the gospel to them. The world's going to this place and that place and doing this and doing that, so let's become like them to reach them where the biblical witness is to be holy as God is holy, to be separate, Paul says. Come out from among them. Be different. You're a new creation. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So we can't outsmart God and say, well, if we do it this way, if we try to reach them this way and sin like them, then it's like, no, we need to separate ourselves, cry out to God for wisdom, but we need to be holy. And what's going to win the world is us living for Christ preaching the gospel, but also the scripture talks about our unity and our true love for one another is that which will show the world that Jesus came and died for them. So in Galatians 5 and 6, Paul pleads with them. He's pleading with the Galatian church to continue to walk into the sp- to continue walking in the spirit because if you don't, you can be enslaved all over again. He says that in Galatians 5:1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. 
Some say you can't be subject again to yoke of slavery. You can't go back to the old man. Once you're saved, you're always saved. But Paul goes on to say, you've been severed from Christ. You've been severed from grace. You've fallen from grace if you continue to live in the flesh. It's like wanting to go back to Egypt, right? The Jewish people who are in the, not to the promised land yet, but they're in the wilderness. And it's like, remember those good old days? Remember the days of when we were living in sin, even though they don't say it that way? They were in bondage. They were enslaved. That's the temptation of every Christian. We're not to heaven yet. We're in the in-between. We're in the wilderness and we're tempted at times to go back. And so were the Galatians. So Paul is pleading with them, don't go back. Don't be enslaved again. Don't go back to the law. Walk in the spirit. Walk in the freedom that you have in Christ. So the Lord wants us, as I mentioned, to live out our true identity in him. He wants us to be conformed to Christ. He wants us to bear much fruit. He wants us to live in freedom, not in bondage. He wants us to inherit eternal life. So he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us, to empower us, to strengthen us, to help us to keep the faith so that we'll bear much fruit, live lives pleasing to him, and finish the course that he set before us. Ephesians 1.4 says the Holy Spirit is a down payment. It's a pledge. God's saying, here's the Holy Spirit. He's your down payment for what's to come. And so, and to see how well we're yielding to the Holy Spirit, in Galatians 5, we have a couple lists. We have the deeds of the flesh. We have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. How well, the question for today, how well are you and I yielding to the Holy Spirit? How well are you walking in the Holy Spirit? And so let's go ahead and read Galatians 5, 13 through 25. It says, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We're in a daily battle. He uses the word opposition. Flesh and the Spirit are in opposition. Then he concludes with the argument in verse 24. 
crucify the flesh. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires and continue to crucify the flesh. What defines our life? Is it verses 19 through 21 or is it verses 22 and 23? The more you and I walk in the spirit, yield to the spirit, live by the spirit, verses 22 and 23 will describe your life and my life. And the more we're losing the battles in our life, the more that we're walking in the flesh, the more that we're living selfishly, verses 19 through 21 will begin to describe our lives. So if you pulled your spouse into the courtroom, close friends, family, and they were interrogated and asked about you, what list would they say most describes you? It's a good test. It's a good test for you and I. And if you're able to hide things from your spouse and your friends and your family, what would God say ultimately is what matters because he knows you and I more than anyone. He can look in the thought life. We can hide that from our friends and family and those close to us. What would God say describes your life and my life, 19 through 21 or 22 and 23? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling is Paul's pleading with the Galatian church and with us as well. And if you say, well, I'm in 19 through 21, that's where I've been lately. Well, then what's the solution? Walk by the Spirit so that you will not give in to the desires of the flesh. Crucify these things. Hate these things. Flee from these things. Expose these things. Get around brothers and sisters who love you, who can encourage you. And do what the psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against thee. Hide his word in your heart. Get out the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires. Romans 12, 9 says, hate that which is evil. Cling to that which is good. Hate the things in 19 through 21. Cling to the things listed in 22 and 23. Scripture says that there's a war going on in our soul. 1 Peter 2.11, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Abstain from them. Don't practice them. Don't give in to them. Be a man or woman of God. Be bold and courageous. Hold to your word. Hold fast to that which you said to God when you put your faith and trust in him. Just like those of us that are married when we walk the aisle and we said till death do us part and these are the things that we are going to do for our spouse and we're going to love them and sickness and, and this and that and then we get married and life is hard and the spouse gets sick and the spouse isn't feeling good and the spouse is yelling at us and this, I mean not that that's happened in your guys' relationships but then how do we react? Do we go back to our vows and say I I'm going to keep what I said at that altar. There was many witnesses at some of our weddings to attest to what was said and those vows that should be kept. And then the test comes the rest of our life. And that's a picture of our Christian walks with the Lord. When we came to the Lord, we said, Lord, I trust you. I believe you. I surrender all. I'll do anything for you, Lord. And then the flesh beats down on us. And the scripture says, abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Crucify them, flee from them. Hold to your oath, so to speak, that you and I made when we came to the Lord. And it can only be done through the Holy Spirit, the power that is at work within us. So Romans 8.13 
says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Scripture uses strong metaphors, strong language for the flesh and what we're to do to it. Put it to death, crucify it, abstain from it. Sobering warnings in the scripture. Those who practice such things, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the opposite teaching of many Christian churches today. Practice these things and God still loves you. Practice these things, you've already been saved. Practice these things and you're going to go to heaven. You're going to lose some rewards, but you're still going to get in. That's not what the scripture says. Practice these things and you will not inherit the kingdom of God of God. We need to be serious about these things. We need to take these warnings and we need to do spiritual heart surgery in our lives and say, Lord, am I practicing these things? God uses the warnings in scripture because he loves us. He uses these warnings to cause us to repent. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to your to repentance. And in his kindness, he lays out the things that will destroy us. The question is, will we yield to him? Will we humble ourselves before him? And will we say, Lord, help. Lord, help me to walk in the spirit. That's my prayer. Help me to live in the spirit, walk in the spirit. Help me to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Help me to grow in my love for you. And as Paul says, my love for my neighbor in verse 14. That's a fulfillment of the scripture. If I can love God and love my neighbor and grow in those things, I'm gonna be fulfilling his word. Easier said than done. So Lord, help us. So what is goodness? That's what we're talking about today. Goodness, the Greek word is agathosune. Agathosune, that's the Greek word in verse 22 for goodness. It's a goodness that comes from God and shows itself in spiritual moral excellence. To be virtuous. It speaks of being benevolent, benefiting others. It speaks of the uprightness of heart and life. It's only used four times in scripture. It's only used in Paul's letters. And Greek historians say that it's not used anywhere else in Greek antiquity. It's not used anywhere else in secular Greek literature. McLaren's exposition describes this word goodness as an attitude of not retaliating, but responding with good. Benson's commentary states of goodness, it's a benevolent and beneficent disposition with all that is kind, soft, winning, and tender, either in temper or behavior, as the Greek word implies. And Clark's commentary states, it's the perpetual desire and sincere study, not only to abstain from every appearance of evil, but to do good to the bodies and souls of men to the utmost of our ability. So there's a couple definitions of what this word goodness means. Let me give you the three other places in scripture where this word is used. Romans 15, 14. Paul says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. It's in the context of the power of the Holy Spirit in the verse right before. Another place it's used is Ephesians 5, 9. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness, and truth. And also, 
2 Thessalonians 1.11. To this end, also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So God wants us, according to these verses, to be full of goodness, consist in all goodness, fulfill every desire for goodness. It's only through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in us. When Ray Comfort goes street witnessing, he'll often ask people, if you've heard him, do you think you're a good person? Do you think you do good? Do you think you're a good person? And what do most people say on the streets? They say, yeah, I do think I'm a good person. That's the response that he gets overwhelmingly. 99 out out of 100 people think they're a good person because they think over their lives and they, they say, well, I do good to my neighbor and I have kids and I take them out to Chuck E. Cheese and I do this for this person and I give to the poor from time to time and I'm pretty good and God sees that and yet they discount all of their sin, right? They discount the weight of their sin. That one sin against a holy God is enough to throw them into hell. And yet, multitudes and multitudes of sin in their life. And that's why Ray then brings them to the law. He says, give grace to the humble, give the law to the proud. That's how he evangelizes. If someone comes up to them and they're like, I don't think I'm a good person. I don't know if I'm good. I need help. Will you help me, Ray? He's not going to slam them with the law. He's most likely going to say, He might bring them to the law, but he'll do it gently and then very quickly show them who Jesus is, show them their need for the Savior. But it's the people that are proud. I'm good. And it's like, oh, really? How many lies have you told? And then if they say none, then he'll say, okay, well, (laughs) that's another lie right there, right? Most people will start to, you'll start to see some humility start to come out as the questions come. Have you ever committed adultery? No. But Jesus said if you look on a woman, With lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. And people begin to see the sin in their lives. They begin to see that they're really not good. And that's the testimony of Scripture, that none of us are good apart from Jesus Christ. But in him, we can bear the fruit of goodness. In him, we can actually do good that's pleasing in his sight. Only believers can do that. So the noun agathosone comes from the Greek adjective agathos. And that Greek word, which means good, is used 101 times in scripture. It's used all throughout the scripture. Several ways to define that word is upright, honorable, fulfilling the duty of service demanded, free from guile, particularly from a desire to corrupt the people. It's used in Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Hopefully words that will be said to each and every one of us at the end of our lives when we stand before the Lord. Well done, good and faithful slave. So if we are going to strive to bear the fruit of goodness in our lives, I believe one way that we can practically define it outside of the ways that we have defined it already is to look at Galatians 5, 19 through 21. If you look at the vice list, and scripture says, abhor that which is evil, cling to that which is good. Well, if we're to live good lives before the Lord, that would mean, in a sense, to do the opposite, to not give in to these fleshly desires, but to do the opposite. What's listed here, I've put in four different categories. 
and I want to discuss those in just a minute. We have 15 different words used to describe the deeds of the flesh, and I believe Paul could have gone on more because he says things like these. And so he could have described more deeds of the flesh. This isn't an exhaustive list, but it's a pretty detailed list of 15 things. And if you guys have checked the news at all lately or if you check the news daily, it won't take you but two minutes to find all 15 of these things in your newsfeed. Just scroll down for just a minute and look at it and you will see all of these things listed. This week, I decided not to look at the news. I decided not to look at Twitter. Even though I don't have a Twitter account, they allow me to go in there and check other Twitter accounts. So I'll look up pastors and theologians and I'll look up what Elon Musk is tweeting and tweeting, however you say it. And I'm looking around just to see, because I feel like at any moment, the world's so volatile, something's going to happen. I feel like if I don't check it for one day, a nuclear bomb's dropped over here, or someone's assassinated over here, or our economy's, you know, shaking and crumbling, or something's going to happen. Every day I'm checking the Fauci files. I'm wait- I was waiting for that. And so I've had to check in with Leah throughout the week. Hey, has anything happened? Okay, good. Nothing. Okay, checked in with her a couple days later. Anything crazy going on in the world? I mean, I don't want to stand up and preach if, like, the world's about to crumble before us. I mean, it's kind of important. But I needed to take a break. It was just, it's overwhelming at times, and it's all-consuming. And I've mentioned, and you guys probably know this, that they pay billions of dollars, some of these social media sites and news sites, and to get our attention, to keep our attention. The more we're on their sites, the more we're clicking on these things, the more money they're making. YouTube would crumble probably in a week if people just stopped going on it for a week and Twitter and all these places because there's advertising. The more time we're on there, the more money they're typically making. So I said, okay, I'm going to take a week off. And it was hard. I got to be honest. I don't know how many times I grabbed my phone, even like not realizing it, ready to go on. Okay, what's going on? Oh, I'm not, I'm not doing that this week. And it was constant and it was hard. And I challenge you, try to do it for a day. If you're a person that likes to check the news and likes to look at Twitter, likes to go on social media, give it a day just to see. See if it's easy for you. Or see if there's a, a battle going on like the scripture talks about. And I noticed I had a lot more time to pray. I had a lot more time to read the Bible. I had a lot more of a sound mind, I felt like. Because at least for me, I don't just typically look at Twitter and maybe I'll look at one thing. I'm like scrolling and I'm scrolling and this one thing leads to this one thing and this article leads to this article and I'm trying to get deeper into this and before I know it, I started here and I'm way over here 20 minutes later. And then my mind's exhausted and I'm like, sometimes after 20, 30 minutes, I'm like, what did I just accomplish? What did I just learn? And if I was reading about murder or the list that we have here, disputes and dissensions and this and that, where is my mind now? Is my mind now ready to love God and worship him and pray and love my neighbor and serve them? Or is my mind now caught up in this gossip and this quarreling and these things? We have to pray for wisdom on, it looks different in each of our lives. But for me, I just decided to take a week off. And as I mentioned, it was hard. Timothy Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 7, the second half of the verse, train yourself to be godly. The NASB says, discipline yourself for godliness. The King James says, exercise yourself for godliness. There's a training involved in being a godly man and woman of God. 
there's an exercise involved. And if we're constantly giving our mind over to things that aren't of the Lord, are we really disciplining our mind, our souls, to be godly, to be saturated in his word? It's a good question for us to think about. So I group these words, these deeds of the flesh into four categories that I want to go over. The first category is sexual immorality. That's the first thing on the list. Immorality, as the NASB translates it, sexual immorality, as some of the translations translate it, impurity, sensuality, and then the last deed that he mentions, carousing, which can also be translated orgies, wild parties. He's pretty much describing politicians, Congress, things like that. The more you'd, if you were to look into those things. But bearing the fruit of goodness means what? In terms of the sexual immorality and these things listed, it means fleeing from these things. If we're going to bear the fruit of goodness, it means to run from these things, to hate these things, to expose these things, not being passive, not being indifferent, realizing that the enemy wants to destroy us with these things, realizing that the people that created our phones and our laptops and our computers, many of them weren't Christians. And so I believe that Satan's used them to distract us, to entangle us, and not only us as adults, but even children. Children as young as eight years old are admitting to addictions of sexual immorality online, pornography. Sexual immorality, business as I'll call it, generates billions and billions of dollars each year. More revenue than ABC, NBC, and CBS combined, according to one article. More than the combined revenues of the NFL, the NBA, and the MLB. So we must flee from it. We must hate it. We must practice wisdom so that our minds are being saturated in God's word and not on these things. So if we're going to strive to bear the fruit of goodness, as I mentioned, we need to live pure lives, holy lives, flee from these things. We need to say like Job in Job 31.1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? We should meditate on Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We should pray and even sing the song that we sang earlier that I didn't know that was going to be played, but this happens often. Psalm 51, 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Lord, create in me a clean heart. Some of our hearts have been defiled, impure, from the things that we've seen online, the things that are being thrown at us from every direction. I don't believe that there's been any culture in the history of the world that's been bombarded by sexual images, sex sexual temptation, as much as our culture has. And yeah, you can look at Sodom and Gomorrah and you can look at some of the ancient cultures in the Bible that were wicked, and but they didn't have... They weren't able to pull something out of their f on their phone and look things up, I don't believe. They weren't able to have the easy access that we have today. And I believe the enemy is using it to destroy people's lives, to destroy families, to destroy churches, to destroy many people in this world. And the Lord wants us to expose these things. He wants us to run to him. He wants us to have clean hearts, pure hearts. He wants us to worship him and glorify him with our lives. And Satan knows that we can't do that if we're being saturated by these things. And so we must remember and remind ourselves 
Psalm 73, 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Proverbs 9, 17, 18 is real about these things. It says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. One way to think of sexual morality is like an apple with a sharp razor blade inside of it. You're hungry, you want to be satisfied, you bite into that apple and it cuts you and destroys you. That's one way it was described online when I was listening to a message on sexual immorality. So we need to expose it, we need to uncover it, we need to see it for what it is. It leads to death. Psalm 107.9 says, He has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Psalm 107.9. Really, that's what's going on when we, if we were to decide to go to these things, is that we lack something in our souls. We need to be satisfied. We need God's joy in our souls. When When our cups are overflowing, when we're fulfilled in him, we don't need the things of the world. Like David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I don't have these wants. I'm not going to have these desires because God is my desire. He is my satisfaction. David says, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Psalm 63. Maybe the NIV translates that a little bit differently for our vernacular, our, the way we talk. But he's saying it's like a steak dinner. That's what God does to my soul. I'm satisfied in him. Why would I look over here to this? I don't need that. I'm good in God. So that's what we need to dwell on. God's goodness, his mercy, his love for us, and his satisfaction. The second word that I want to mention, idolatry. For bearing the fruit of goodness, we hate any idols. Anything that displaces God from the place of preeminence, the place of our love, our affections, our worship, our honor, our praise, anything in this world that tries to get in the way of keeping God first in our lives must be crucified. Must be, we must run from it. We must flee from it. That could be possessions. That could be friends. That could be family. That could be jobs. That could be money. Things that are good can turn into an idol if we're not careful. So, bearing the fruit of goodness means we have no rivals, no competitions, that God is first and foremost above all else. Third grouping of words here, drunkenness, found in verse 21, and sorcery, found in verse 20. I put those two together. Sorcery, the Greek word is pharmakeia, where we get the English word pharmacy. According to the National Center for Drug Abuse Statistics, 32 million Americans are on drugs. The article that I looked up said that's not including alcohol and tobacco. 32 million Americans on drugs. Here's another statistic when it comes to drunkenness. According to the NHTSA.gov, every day, 32 people in the U.S. die from a drunk driving accident. That's one person every 45 minutes. Every 45 minutes, according to this statistic, someone dies because of drunk driving. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people every year. So when Romans 8.13 says those who, living, those who are living according to the flesh must die, we see that play out in our lives with drunkenness. 
One article states drug use costs the country $740 billion each year in lost work, health care, and drug-related crimes. The enemy uses drug use. He uses magical arts, sorcery to wreck people's lives. That's what he does with this entire list. He wants to destroy us. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's the lie of Satan, is that if you live in verses 22 and 23, you're not going to be fulfilled. You're not going to be happy. You're missing out on something. That's what Satan's telling the teenagers in this world today. That's what he's telling the young people. If you serve the Lord, if you trust in him, if you follow him, you're missing out. You're not missing out. You're not missing anything. You're only destroying yourself if you live in verses 20 and 21. And that's what we as Christians need to remind each other of. We need to expose these things. We need to tell our young people, you can be different from those around you. Yes, the entire crowd is going this way. You don't need to. It's going to destroy you. You want to live the blessed life? You want to be satisfied? You want to be a blessing to God and blessing to others? Pursue him. Pursue righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. That's where faith kicks in. Do we trust God? Do we trust his word? Do we trust that we'll be satisfied if we let verses 20 and 21 go by the wayside? And we say, I don't care if I would never touch any of these things again. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter four. I believe it's verse two or chapter five, verse two. He says, do not even let these things be named among you. If you're a Christian, don't even let the name of it be brought up. Be so far from these things, hate these things, run from these things. Be so close to Christ that this isn't even named among you. That's our goal as Christians. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do that. Revelation 18, 23. For your merchants were powerful. The second half of the verse says, your merchants were powerful, people of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your witchcraft, your sorcery, your pharmakeia. In the end times, sorcery, the Bible says, will increase. Lawlessness will increase, and with that, witchcraft will. Article titled, Why Paganism and Witchcraft Are Making a Comeback. October 30th, 2022, the day before Halloween, this witch wrote this article online. The subtitle, Is Magic Really Real? For me, the answer is yes. She was excited to talk about witchcraft and excited about the day which followed. She says, quote, I am one of a million plus Americans that practice some form of witchcraft. Witchcraft, which includes Wicca, paganism, folk magic, and other new age traditions is one of the fastest growing spiritual paths in America. In 1990, there was an estimated 8,000 adherents to Wicca. In 2008, the figure was 342,000. She says, I light candles to the goddess Diana at every full moon. I place small bundles of rosemary in my altar to honor the dead. I know that magic happens. When I summon the strength to draw boundaries or stir away the guilt that bubbles up, if I choose self-care over self-sacrifice. She's pretty dedicated. She's walking by a spirit. It's not the spirit of God. Why are witches more entrenched? Why are they more on fire, so to speak? Why are they promoting their ideology and excited to talk about it? 
Yet we as Christians lack that fervor. We as Christians need to outdo them, so to speak. We need to grow in our love for God and walk in the spirit. Witchcraft, it says, has over 7 million posts on Instagram. More than 11 billion views on TikTok. Back to social media and what Satan's doing with these things. And they try to make it look good, right? It's self-care and we're honoring the dead. And she mentions in this article that a friend came to her and was struggling in life and she did some palm reading or did something for her and she said she left encouraged and I was able to help her. And you see, it's not bad witchcraft, it's good witchcraft. We're, we're here to help people and honor the dead and honor people. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. See, we need to expose these things for what they are. They're not of the light, they're of the darkness. They're not of God, they're of Satan. Revelation 9.21, they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, pharmacaeas, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Their love grows cold. People do not have love for God, so they turn to whatever idol it may be. And for many people, it's witchcraft and sorcery. So bearing the fruit of goodness means we expose these things. We expose drug use for what it is. We expose witchcraft and sorcery and all these things. And we help those caught up in it. By God's grace, I was able to help people caught up in many of these things at the rescue mission where I worked. And for some of them, these things were connected. Some of them had pentagrams tattooed on them and I love Satan and things like this. And they were involved in occult practices and witchcraft in jail and they combined it with drug use. And then they come to the rescue mission and I'm pleading with them to turn to Christ, to turn to Jesus and live, to live the abundant life that Satan wants to destroy them because many of them are even deceived. And they think, oh, this is, it's not really a bad thing, it's a good thing. Satan's always deceiving people. He's diverting things. He's, he's turning things upside down to where they think it's a good thing. And in the end, they're led to the slaughter. So, we need to take Peter's admonition, 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the Greek word be sober doesn't necessarily only mean be sober from drugs or alcohol. Be sober-minded. Have a sound mind. You could say I've never drank alcohol or done drugs my entire life, but I play 15 hours of video games a day and I'm on social media all day, and I'm involved in gossip and this and that into where your mind, you're not sober anymore. You're not able to pray the way you should. You're not able to worship the way you should. You're not able to serve the Lord the way you should. So we need to be sober-minded and watchful, knowing the enemy wants to destroy you and I, wants to destroy your family, your marriage, wants to destroy your kids' lives, wants to destroy this church. We can't become complacent. You can't say, oh, my marriage is doing well, my family's doing well. The church is doing well. So let's just, take, let's just take a break. Let's just let our hair down, so to speak. Let's just lighten up. Lighten up and live a little bit and we'll be all right. No, it's a constant battle. It's a fight every day for our souls. So we need to be vigilant. We need to be watchful. We need to cling to the Lord. We need to walk in the spirit every day when we wake up. is a battle. And the fourth set of words here. So we get ready a couple minutes to bring this to a close. 
enmities, verse 20, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. He belabors the point. Many of these words overlap, deals with division in the church, deals with separation, deals with hatred. First word, enmities, means hostility, being an enemy. The word strife means contention, quarreling, disputing. The word jealousy, the Greek word actually means hot enough to boil. It means fury. It means zeal. Not, ze- not to be zealous for God, but zealous for self-motivated reasons. Then he lists outbursts of anger, rage, indignation, fierceness. The Bible says be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. I think Pastor Joe said when he's counseled men for 30 years, he sees pride, lust, and anger. Top three things that he counsels, I think specifically, men on. Perhaps women as well. But men, we can struggle with anger. And we can justify it too. Well, my son did that, so I can be angry. I can raise my voice. Something I've really been thinking about lately. And it's one benefit this week, praise God, to not going on my phone really. I I noticed that I was more gentle with my kids, more kind to my kids. I was ready to snap and then I was able to catch myself. And I think, I could be wrong, there's different things that have been going on in this fight to love God more and pray more. But every time I say no to the phone, I'm practicing self-control. No, I'm not going to look that up. No, I'm not going to go there. No, I'm not going to do that. Even though it's not bad in and of itself to look up news or some of these things, Practicing that self-control, I believe, allows me now, or at least this week, when my kids were getting out of hand and I want to snap, maybe want to raise my voice a little bit louder than I typically would, I'm able to calm down. I'm able to have self-control in that moment. We're all works in progress. God's patient with us, but he wants us to grow. Disputes means to seek the fall, to seek followers. Selfish ambition, rivalry, feud. He mentions the word dissensions. It's division, standing separately. Factions, that word in the Greek is heresies. A strong, distinctive opinion. A faction, again, an envying. A grudge, the feeling of ill will, being glad when someone experiences misfortune. You ever been glad when someone experiences misfortune? Or have you ever wished that on someone? and I just hope they don't succeed. I hope they don't do well. Well, we hope that maybe for like abortion doctors and drug cartels and sex slavery or whatever. Yeah, we hope they don't succeed. Yeah, we hope ill will in a sense. We hope that they're judged. We hope they turn to Christ and live, but if not, it's like, come Lord Jesus. May they be judged. But how do we treat our enemies? How do we treat our enemies in the church? How do we treat people that have wronged us? I mean, I felt like I was wronged at the rescue mission where I worked. I felt like the people there that were over me didn't treat me with respect. I don't feel like they were kind to me. I don't think they appreciated the years that I poured my life into the men there. I think they just kind of dismissed me when I didn't agree with the agenda that they were pushing. And instead of looking at what I did for the Lord there and honoring me and things like that, I didn't see that. Well, now what do I do eight months later? Do I hold on to bitterness? Do I hope their lives fail? Do I hope the rescue mission crumbles to the ground? 
Well, if there's false teaching going on there and not the true gospel, then, you know, I hope the true gospel is preached. And I pray for them. I pray for their families. Because every so often, a thought or a feeling comes into my heart and my mind. Remember what they said to you? Remember what they did? Remember that lie? Remember how they twisted this or that? Tried to trap you with that? And I go, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Luke 6.35, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Luke 6.28, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Try to do these things without the Holy Spirit. Impossible. So I say, Lord, bless them. Bless their families. Be with them, Lord. And if there's any wicked way in them, if they're preaching a false gospel, if they're preaching something that's not of you, I pray that you turn them around. Pray that you convict them. Pray that you use them for your glory. Pray that you help them to bear much fruit. We're called to pray, to pray blessing upon them. Not only judgment, but blessing and love towards them. We don't want to hold on to bitterness. Scripture says, as far as it's possible, be at peace with all men. I see that. An illustration is like you're always ready to extend peace to everyone in your life. They may not take that, but you are willing. You're ready. You're pursuing it. You're diligent in it. I want to be at peace with every person in this world that I've come into contact with. Is that your heart and my heart? Ephesians 4.3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So we love people. We call people to repentance, but we try through the power of the Holy Spirit to be at peace with them, to love them, to not be embittered, to not be angry. So pray for those who bother you, those who seem to always one-up you, those who seem to be better than you at this or that, those who seem to be more successful or more gifted or more talented, whatever it is, don't envy them. Don't be jealous. Look at all that God's blessed you and I with and thank him for that. And look for people to bless because they're all around you and I. Look for people to serve. Look for people to care for. That's what bearing the fruit of goodness means. Instead of dividing, instead of being selfish, instead of being self-serving, like that witch admitted to, I'm self-serving, not self-sacrificing. I'm self-caring. No, be self-sacrificing. Sacrifice yourself and give to others. Put, the, your, put your jealousy and your envy and your pride and your ego and your bitterness. We need to crucify those things. We need to put those off to the side. We need to self-sacrifice and pray for unity. Pray for love for the brethren. Pray that we don't hold on to bitterness because that's what the enemy wants. He wants to divide the church. He wants us to be divided in our families, with our kids. So seek peace and pursue it. Psalm 34, 14, 1 Peter 3, 11. Seek peace and pursue it. There's a motto in the Marines. Until we're home, no man left behind. That's the motto. Until we're home, no man left behind. Your comrade is shot next to you. He's killed. You're an enemy fire. What's your job as a Marine? To run for safety or to save your brother? To drag him off or to save yourself? How is it that they can do better than the church? How is it that they 
are taught this over and over and over again, and they're willing to lay down their lives for each other and take bullets coming their way, enemy fire, and drag their brother aside to bring him home. I think we need to have that saying in the church. Until we're home, no one is left behind. That we're constantly caring for each other. Looking to those who are overlooked. Looking to bless them. Looking to serve them. Looking to give our lives to them. Two last points. To pursue goodness means to have the humble attitude of Jesus Christ. I love when Paul says that in Philippians. Have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself, taking on a form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of a man, and being found in the appearance of man, a man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He came down to nothing. He came down, Greek word is doulos. He came down to be a slave. He came down to serve. Son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He had nothing. He gave everything. To the end, he's washing his disciples' feet. He's pouring into them. He's loving them. He's providing a home for his mom while he's on the cross. He's praying to his father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Constantly sacrificing himself over and over and over again. And Paul says, have that attitude in yourself. When they were responding with anger towards him, he responded with love and compassion. God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. He calls us, to do the same. So my last point is we need to be clothed with Christ. If we're going to bear the fruit of goodness, that means that we heed the words of Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This world clothes themselves with the opposite, as we just read. Division, outbursts of anger, sexual immorality, were to wear different clothes. Romans 13, 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh and its desires. So may our, may our walks with the Lord in the Holy Spirit, bearing the fruit of goodness, be marked by our compassion, our love, our gentleness, our patience. May we say like Joshua, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Though everyone's going this way, I will serve the Lord. I will obey the Lord so that we can say like David, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's my prayer today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus We thank you, Lord, that your word is there to guide us and direct our steps. Your word is there to convict us, to exhort us, to rebuke us, Lord, to correct us so that we will stay on the straight and narrow path that leads to life. Narrow is the gate, hard is the way that leads to life. Few are those who find it. Lord, help us to win the battle every day. Help us to live in Galatians 
5, 22, and 23 to walk by the Spirit. That love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, all these things, self-control, Lord, may these be apparent in our lives. They don't save us, Lord, you save us through the cross, but may these, Lord, be apparent to those in the church, those in this world, Lord. So would you help us? Would you strengthen us? Would you empower us to live for you? In Jesus' name, amen.